Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 23 in the book of Hebrews titled, Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient, from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we continue to move through chapter 9. This is now the fourth podcast in chapter 9, as we talk about the superiority of Christ, His priesthood, and His sacrifice, how it is much more superior over and against the Aaronic priesthood and the Aaronic sacrifices. What do we see in verses 23 through 28 that continue to add to his argument? Well, the central message here is the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus being sufficient for our sins. It doesn't need to be endlessly repeated, and in that way it is superior to the animal sacrificial system. But there's some subordinate points that are, I don't know, worth the price of admission. They're just so incredible and so glorious. Verse 27 the single greatest verse in the Bible on the linearity of human life, the linearity of human history, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that reincarnation, which some people claim to be Christians and believe in, is not biblical. It says plainly in Hebrews 9.27 that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So it also gets rid of that atheistic, materialistic emptiness that we're a bunch of chemicals that cease producing thoughts in the human brain. It's that materialistic um, atheism that says there's nothing after death. No, after death comes judgment. And for us Christians, after judgment comes heaven. And it's just so uh, beautiful. So I'm just so excited to go through these verses with you today. Mm -hmm. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 23 through 28. And to give an idea of context, the author was just explaining how the high priests would have to go into the holy places with um, blood, and they would have to bring blood, and that in the same way Moses uh, sanctified the instruments of the old covenant with blood. And so verse 23 picks up on this. He says, Thus it was necessary for the copies, remember that's the tabernacle, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered up once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Andy, my first question relates to a verse 23 it says, he says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So we explained why it was necessary in the last podcast for the copies, that's the tent, the tabernacle, the altar, to be uh, sanctified. Why is it necessary then for the heavenly things to be sanctified with these rites or purified with these rites? Right. Whenever we get into sanctifying or purifying language, we are talking about the defilement of sin. That's the only reason that, that anything would need to be purified is because it begins impure or defiled or corrupted and has to be cleansed or purified. And what has corrupted the universe is human sin. 
So the, uh, there was nothing intrinsically sinful about the, the cloth that made up the tabernacle. It's an inanimate object. There was nothing intrinsically sinful about the acacia wood poles that held up the cloth or the stanchions or the tenons that held it together or there's nothing intrinsically sinful about the gold or, or, or any of the things, the materials that made up the tabernacle. But it was human sinfulness. It was human hands, Bezalel and other craftsmen who were skillful but sinful. And so when they got done with their work, they had to be purified. So the clear message that even though it was made according to the pattern given to Moses through a vision of the heavenly realities, it still had to be purified because we're such sinful people and we have to be purified. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So it is by the shedding of blood that all of the earthly tabernacle had to be purified. Now, verse 23, I consider to be a challenging verse. It's a difficult verse. Yeah, because it seems to indicate that the heavenly things need cleansing. Yeah, and that's what makes it hard. And also the plural of the word sacrifices at the end of the sentence. It was necessary for the heavenly things to be purified with better sacrifices than these. So but the whole point of the author here is there's a once-for-all sacrifice that's not endlessly repeated. So if I can be honest, I don't have a final answer for why the word sacrifice is plural there. Uh, in verse 23. We know that the author is saying that there is a once-for-all sacrifice that purifies everything, that purifies all of the people of God. But then let's get to the other problem of verse 23. So I'm giving you a big, I don't know why the word's plural, plural there. Um, it could be the application of Christ pluralizes it to some degree for each of the redeemed, but it's still difficult for me. I'm not really satisfied with that answer, and I don't have a better one for you. Uh, but the author is clearly saying, once for all, Jesus is not endlessly repeated. That is so very clear. Um, so then the other problem is, why did the heavenly things have to be purified? And there's various answers, but let me just get to the, what I think the heart of the matter is. There is a sense in which we, the people of God, we, the, uh, the redeemed, make up the heavenly tabernacle. We, the, we are the, the temple. We are the, the dwelling in which God will live by his spirit. We are likened to living stones. Uh, the, uh, the vision in Isaiah is that, that even Gentiles who are redeemed become uh, a memorial in the heavenly Zion, uh, you know, which is lasting and eternal. So there's a sense in which to redeem from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We make up the heavenly tabernacle, but we need it to be purified. And so that's the best I can make of it. There's nothing defiled about the seraphim or the cherubim up in heaven. There's nothing defiled about the heavenly places. But uh, we make up, to some degree, the final temple or the final dwelling by being living stones, and we need to be purified by something better than animal sacrifices. Right. How is the blood of Christ on the cross sufficient for the cleansing of all these things? Well, that's just a beautiful question, and I love it. Christ is infinitely sufficient for us because of his infinite personhood. You know, whenever we're sharing the gospel with people, uh, we tend to break it into four main sections, God, man, Christ, and response. In the Christ section, we're going to break it into two parts. Who was he and what did he do? So that would be a good subset of what you're going to try to communicate when sharing the gospel. Who was he? He was the God-man fully God, fully human. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, fully human, also fully God. And as fully God, he was an infinite person. And in that he 
what did he do? He lived a sinless life. He did all these miracles. He spoke in parables. He gave a perfect illustration of submission to the law of God and Moses. He perfectly fulfilled the Ten Commandments and every commandment. So he lived a sinless life, but especially died on the cross. And here's where his infinite majesty comes in. He, as the infinite person of God, in his humanity dying, his, per, his deity couldn't die, could never die, but in his humanity, uh, he died once, but in his infinite, the significance of him being the only begotten son of God, it was sufficient for the sins of, of, of infinite worlds, of our world and infinite beyond. It was an infinite ocean of grace. And so that once for all death was sufficient for all of my sins, Joel, all of your sins, all of the sins of our hearers, all of the sins of the redeemed in every generation over a millennia of history. That's the greatness of the work of Christ. Yeah, I think that's a really good answer. I think that also shows us why it's so important to study and, and accurately understand the doctrine of Christ, because, you know, many heresies have creeped up in church history, one, you know, denying the full deity. Um, but as, as the church fathers pointed out, when you do that, um, which the, the doctrine that ends up suffering is the atonement, because only the eternal Son of God can sufficiently pay for our sins. Amen. And we can't meditate on it enough. You know, we, we don't know. You know, like the psalmist said in Psalm 71, I will, I will give thanks to you for your salvation, though I know not its full measure. We don't have a full sense of how sinful we, we are and were and, and still, still will be, sadly. But we also don't have a full sense of the provision that, that God made in Christ, how infinitely great that provision was. Amen. So according to verse 24, where did Christ go to do this ministry and why did he go there? Well, the verse tells us that he went to heaven. He offered his, his once-for-all sacrificial blood in the heavenly realms, not on the earthly tabernacle, which is man-made and copy and shadow and now is gone, but he went once-for-all into the heavenly realms, uh, right into the very presence of God. So why did this have to be done in the heavenly realms? Well, that's, you know, that's where God has his throne. That's, that's where he dwells, where he rules and reigns and and it's a, it's a very powerful image here. He's presenting his once-for-all sacrificial blood to the throne of God on our behalf. And so we are br being brought near to God. We're being brought close to him that he was sacrificed once for all in order to take us who are far away because of our sins into a right relationship with God. And so that's pictured for us in the heavenly realms where God has his, his throne. I think about the, the great verse where it says in Isaiah, he says, I dwell in a high and holy place but also with him who is humble and contrite in spirit. I love that one. Yeah, but, but even the one who's humble and contrite in spirit has reasons to be humble and contrite in spirit because he's a sinner. And so there's in between that is the but also I dwell with him is the blood of Christ right. offered on our behalf. Yeah, I think it's a, just a beautiful contrast that he's setting up here. You have temporary priests, temporary sacrifice, temporary location, temporary covenant with eternal priesthood, infinitely valuable sacrifice uh, in an eternal place on the eternal altar. And so, yeah, it's, just, it. it's, 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 awesome. it's beautiful. And it's all that superiority language. Yeah. And again, keep in mind who he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish people who made a profession of faith in Christ, but who are being tempted to go back to Old Covenant Judaism. Why go back to a, a can, you know, canvas tent? You know, why go back to something that's it's temporary and it's going to be destroyed? We're come over now forever into the heavenly realms, into the heavenly once-for-all sacrifice, into the perfect covenant. Yeah. I think one of the things I think about, obviously I'm not tempted to go back to Judaism, yeah. but it's just so encouraging to know that, um, that because of this eternal covenant, I'm I'm not going to fall away. I'm not going to out-sin the grace of God. And, you know, 
uh, be dependent on me bringing another sacrifice and making sure I confess all the sins. Like, no, this is sufficient. Yeah. So yeah, praise God. Now, in these verses, he says, you know, he appears in the presence of God uh, to to offer this sacrifice, uh, but. All of this language, we've been talking about him on the cross, like his blood sacrifice that he offers when he's slain on the cross. So when did he appear in the presence of God? Was it while he was on the cross? Was it shortly after his death? Was it when he ascends into heaven? When do you think this happens? Well, the author uses this appearing language, and it's very powerful. Um, and we can talk more about the appearing. When has he appeared? He appeared in the incarnation. He appeared um on the cross, he appeared at the empty tomb with the resurrection. He presented himself alive. But also there's the sense that he appeared before the throne of God on our behalf. And so that, that's up in the heavenly realms. And we're given this, this, this sense in which Jesus presented himself and presented his blood in a final, formal way as our mediator and as our great high priest. And so I think Hebrews 1.3 gives us a sense of that, said that Jesus, after he had provided purification for sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So in between the having provided purification and the sitting down, we could imagine that that's the presentation. Now, when exactly that happened, hard to tell. Uh, it didn't happen before he died. It didn't happen before he shed his blood. That had to happen. So once he had shed his blood, he's able to say, it is finished in John's gospel. He's able to say, Father, into your hands I present my spirit. But also you could say, into your hands I present this finished atoning work. So it could be there on the cross, having finished, having shed his blood, having now died, almost ready to die. He's like, now I'm offering. So it could be that. Or it could be a sense of ascension as he moves through the heavens and goes uh, and, and we are able to follow him in our mind's eye through the words of the book of Hebrews here. He passes through the heavens, offers his blood, sits down at the right hand of God. And then that's done. Once for all presented, once for all offered, but forever mentioned. You know, as he intercedes for us, he pleads on our behalf to finish our salvation. He refers back again and again to his finished work. Right. Now, what does verse 25 just contribute to the, the argument showing the superiority of Christ's ministry? There's two things I see here that I want you to touch on. One is um, the repeated nature of the priest's sacrifice. Sure. The second is this phrase about the priest with blood not his own. So mm -hmm. the verse says, talking about Jesus, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Mm. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Mm. So how does this show the superiority of Christ's sacrifice? Right. Well, this meditation is really what led me to uh, think about the animal sacrificial system, the lessons of the animal sacrificial system. This gave me the third lesson. Uh, just to go back over that because I think it's just very helpful. Uh, the animal sacrificial system teaches three vital lessons that point toward the cross. Lesson number one, all sin deserves the death penalty. It teaches us that because in this very chapter, it says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so the, the animal had to die. We deserve to die for our sins. And so the, the presentation of an animal that dies as blood is shed teaches us all sin deserves a death penalty. Lesson number two, the death penalty can be paid by a substitute. The animal dies and we live. And so the, the, the transfer of guilt, as in Leviticus 16, the priest puts his hands on it, on the head of the, of the animal and confesses uh, the sins of the people and puts them on the animal. That teaches us what the, head on the, the hands on the head gesture means. It's, it's representing a, a transfer of guilt yeah. to the substitute. And so that transfer of guilt is the only hope we have. If guilt cannot be transferred, we're all going to hell. Or God is unjust in saving us, one or the other. But because guilt can be transferred to the substitute, we have a chance of 
of eternal life. So the animal sacrificial system taught that because the animal died and you didn't. The third lesson, however, of the animal sacrificial system is the substitute cannot be an animal, which is like a head scratcher the first time you hear it. It's like, well, wait, well, why did you do it? Because the whole thing is just a type and a shadow. It's symbolism. How do you know that? Endless repetition. Right. Because the animal just, sufficient, they would have ended it. Yeah, it you didn't need it. You're done. But it had to be repeated yearly, annually, uh, and, and then daily in some sense, over and over and over. So the endless repetition shows the inferiority. The once for all aspect shows the superiority. And so Christ is superior because he died once for all. Furthermore, his priesthood is superior to the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood in that they are only lightly invested in this whole thing. They are going there with blood that's not their own. They're not personally invested. Jesus went and offered his own blood. In that way, he's a much more invested, a much more compassionate, a much more committed high priest than they ever were. So this endless repetition shows the inferiority and the fact that Jesus appears once for all with his own blood shows superiority. And quality, quality blood. You know, the other blood was just blood of animals. Sure. This is the blood of the sinless Son of God. Mm-hmm. How does verse 25 help us to see the error and false teaching of the Roman Catholic Mass mm-hmm. where the, the priest, or so-called priest, you know, lifts up a wafer thinking he's offering up Jesus Christ to the Father. Mm-hmm. How does this text show us really how blasphemous that is? Well, I myself was converted out of Roman Catholicism. I was a Roman Catholic in eastern Massachusetts. I was an altar boy in, in Sudbury, uh, first in the, um, uh, in the uh, Roman Catholic Church, St. Uh, Jeremiah's there, uh, or St. Anselm's. I can't remember which was in Framingham, which was in Sudbury. But I was an, I was an altar boy, and, and I was trained that when the priest lifted up the wafer, um, uh, we uh, rang the bells. You know, we, we had to ring these bells. Um, and that, I didn't, they didn't explain anything to us. I found out later what was happening was transubstantiation. They were saying that the, that the, the wafer was actually becoming spiritually, supernaturally, the actual body of Christ. The wine was becoming the actual blood of Christ. And then when the priest would lift them up, he was offering Christ on behalf of the people. It was basically like the Levitical priesthood in, in some kind of a pseudo-New Covenant sort of way. But they missed this once-for-all lesson uh, that Christ was, was sacrificed and offered once for all time. There's not this endless repetition. They call it a dry sacrifice. But it's just wrong and, I think, uh, blasphemous to some degree. Furthermore, that a human priest would actually have the temerity, would actually have the, the boldness to offer Jesus to God. Who gave him that right? How could that even be? Jesus offers himself. He is our high priest, and he offers himself once for all, never to be repeated. And so these are things that I learned later after I came to faith in Christ, that this is what was going on in a Roman Catholic Mass. But there's an inherent blasphemy. And the book of Hebrews, especially this latter part of chapter 9, destroys it. The once-for-all aspect should put an end, once for all, to the Mass with its offering, its endlessly repeated offering of Jesus. Yeah. What would you say to a Catholic who's listening right now who's a little bit shocked at what they're hearing? What kind of advice and counsel would you give? Well, first, read the text. Read what I'm saying here in Hebrews. Just read it. Don't take my word for it. Say, is, this, is the author saying that Jesus was offered once for all, never to be repeated? And when you read it, you'll find that that's what it's saying. Secondly, if you feel you want to, you could go to the priest and say, could you please explain to me the significance of the lifting up of the wafer 
What is happening there? What, do you, what does that symbolism mean? There's a lot of symbolism, but you don't ever explain it. So if you could explain what you understand as a priest, what's happening when you lift up your arms with the wafer? What's happening before that when, when you say, hocus corpus meum in Latin, et cetera, you know, this is my body, uh, and, and the altar boys ring the, ring the bell. What, what's going on? And if he won't tell you transubstantiation, say, well, tell me about transubstantiation. What does that mean? And just get him to explain. And then say, all the symbolism is you are offering Jesus. How does that line up here with Hebrews 9, 23 through 28? How do, we, how do we understand the once for all sacrifice? See what he says. But whether he gives you a satisfactory answer or not, uh, the official stance of the church is that's what's happening. So it could be that the priest is just a rogue priest who's not giving the right Roman Catholic answer. In any case, I would suggest you go away from a church that does not rightly teach the Word of God. Goes away from, go away from a church that does not teach the atoning, the once-for-all atoning work of Christ accurately and find a church that does. Right. Now, at the end of verse 26, he says that he's appeared once for all. We've talked about that. At the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what is the significance of this phrase, the end of the ages? What does that mean? Well, um, he says these are the last days. This is even the last hour. First John says this is the last hour. So we're in the final phase of human history. Now, it's been going on a long time. But remember, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years like a, like a day. So we're in the... We're in the, in the end times. And so this is the final era of redemptive history. That's what I mean by, I think, what he means by the end, end of the uh, ages. So it says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, uh, at this, this end time, he's spoken to us through his son. So just right at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, he identifies that we're in the end of the ages now. And in verse 27, he says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There's a lot in this. Oh, yes, there is. <laughs> a lot in this verse, as you mentioned at the beginning. So first, what does it teach us about man? It is appointed for man to die once. Well, it means that our lives are linear. It destroys the doctrine of reincarnation. One verse will do it. If we believe in inerrancy, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, then we don't need 10 verses or 20 verses that destroy reincarnation. Reincarnation is the idea that the, the soul gets separated from the body at death and then goes back into another body. Uh, in Hinduism or some Eastern religions, uh, it might not even be a human body. It might go back into an animal body or a cricket body or something like that. And so they, they kind of, to some degree, worship all life in ways that are, I think, unbiblical but also because of the idea of reincarnation. There's this endless cycle of rebirth and death and rebirth and death until you finally escape it. That's what karma is all about, that you're going to try to escape the cycle of karma and get to nirvana, which is emptiness or nothingness or something like that. Um, well, the Bible says that that's false. That's a doctrine of demons, that reincarnation is a false doctrine. Uh, and the idea of history being linear. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's true of human life as well. We were conceived in the womb. We were born. We had a first day of breathing air through our lungs. And then we had all the days of our lives. And at the end of our life, we die. And after that, we do not cease to exist. The soul, the immaterial part of us, separates from the body. And the body goes to corruption in the, in the tomb. But the soul goes to judgment. And so after we die, we are judged, evaluated. And if we have received eternal life, we go into heavenly bliss. Uh, so that's what this teaches. So this is a one-verse destruction 
of the doctrine of reincarnation. It really troubles me when Christians, people who call themselves Christians, say, well, I, I tend to think of in terms of reincarnation. There are numbers of people that do it. Some famous people have made views of reincarnation um, popular, like General Patton believed in reincarnation, the movie Patton. He said, I was there. I fought with in, with, in Napoleon's army. I was there with Julius Caesar. I was there when the, the Romans fought the Carthaginians. I was there. Um, it's like, no, you weren't. <laughs> okay, You were born, uh, I think he was born in, up there in Massachusetts, South Hamilton, whatever. I, I drove, used to drive by Patton's farm up there near Gordon-Conwell Seminary. So that was, that's where he, he was raised, I think, or at least he lived there for a time. So yeah, he had, a, he had a beginning, a middle, and an end. He died, and after that went to judgment. So that's a powerful verse, but it's not even the main idea of the verse. Right. The main idea is the, the one for all nature of Christ. But I want to ask you one more verse. Okay, okay. One more question about 27. 27 yep. um, how is, is this verse also really helpful in evangelism? Well, I, I think it's very powerful in evangelism. We, we know in our minds, I don't know if we're going to say the words, but we might. The person we're, we're talking to is mortal. He or she is going to die. And after that, they're going to face judgment. It is appointed for each of us to appear before God and give an account for our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, that we'll have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word we have spoken. So we want to say to somebody, you are going to die, and after that you're going to face judgment. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to give an account for your life? Now, we do have to put a big asterisk on the statement, you are going to die. We know that 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that there's a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed. So there is a final generation of Christians who will not experience physical death, but will be immediately transformed from flesh and blood, which cannot inherit the kingdom of God, to a resurrection body, which can. And so in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we will be changed and we'll receive our incorruptible bodies. So that's the big asterisk. But other than that, if we are not in the final generation, this verse tells us we are definitely going to die. We are destined to die. It's appointed to us to die. There's no avoiding it. Now, verse 28 provides the reason he's giving this. He says, So Christ, or in the same way Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to do with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So right before we began this podcast, I had a new thought on the verse, on verses 27, 28. There isn't one main idea. There's a dual idea. It's a once and after that rhythm. That's what we have in verse 27, 28. So there's a once and after that, once and after that. Verse 27 for us, we die once and after that judgment. So also verse 28, Christ died once and after that second coming. That's the rhythm of the two verses. So he will come a second time. So that's the idea. Jesus doesn't go to judgment after he died. He's a special case. He had no sins. He died on our behalf. But the after that for Jesus in verse 28 is the second coming of Christ. All right, so let's talk about that, the second coming. This is a doctrine that Christians have believed. It's, it's in the Nicene Creed. Um, I believe he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. What, what is the second coming of Christ? When did the scriptures say it's going to happen? And what will happen? It says here to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What happens when he returns? Well, there's so much we could get into. I mean, this is the whole work of systematic theology. So you take a topic and you're going to follow a topic across various texts of scripture that are relevant to it. Um, here in Hebrews, he doesn't say much about what happens at the second coming here in verse 28. What it does say in verse 28 is he appears a second time, there's a second coming, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
Okay, save his people, save his children. And so that implies a, a yet future salvation for us who are already redeemed. There's a final salvation. And I think to keep it simple, we would just say that that refers to, in 1 Corinthians 15, our resurrection bodies. That's the end of our personal salvation. He will appear a second time to finish our salvation by the resurrection of the body. Now, I have a lot more to say about it than that. Uh, there And maybe when we do Second Thessalonians, we'll talk about the man of sin. And it says that Jesus will destroy the man of sin, the Antichrist, with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. So at his second coming, he destroys the Antichrist and saves his people from immediate peril. At that point, some people think it's even related to the Jews when it says all Israel will be saved. There's a whole complex of eschatology that we can't get into here. So for now, let's just save it for those podcasts whenever we get into that. But a lot is going to happen at the second coming of Christ. But in his mind, he's coming to save his people. And I think it's a multifaceted salvation. But at least we can say this, to save them to the uttermost or to save them completely. And that means resurrection from the dead to save our mortal bodies or save us really from our mortal bodies. Yeah, I can't wait. Awesome. Yep. What did this last phrase teach us about the heart stance we should have? Mainly, I'm, I'm thinking of to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What does that teach us about how we should be uh, conducting our days here? Well, first, again, a big word, eschatology, which is the doctrine of the end times, the doctrine of the future things, should be more important to Christians than it really is. We should be thinking about heaven all the time, every day. We should set our hearts on things above and things to come, not on earthly things. We should be thinking about the second coming of Christ and what follows. We should think about the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, and it should make us more and more eagerly waiting for him. We should be eager in waiting. The eagerness here the zeal with which we wait for Christ is called hope. Biblically, it's called hope. The, the eager expectation that the future is bright, indescribably bright, that that fills us with hope. And we just are every day just excited about that, looking forward to that, filled with hope. Even when we're facing our own death, we're just filled with hope so we die well. And what that means is that people who are without hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2, will ask us, 1 Peter 3, to give us a reason for the hope that we have because they don't have it. So I would say we need to be eagerly waiting for Jesus, excited for him to come. And some of that also goes to personal holiness. We tend to not be so excited to see him if we're in sin. We, we would be ashamed at his coming uh, because we're cowardly and we're not speaking. You know, Jesus said in Mark 8, if anyone's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. So in that case, there will be a category of people who are going to be saved as those escaping through the flames. They didn't live really openly for the glory of God. They didn't speak much about Christ. They weren't holy like they needed to be. They weren't putting sin to death by the Spirit like they should have. And so there will be a sense of not being, First John talks about it, being excited at His coming and not ashamed of His coming. So it's not a guarantee that every Christian is going to be equally excited when Christ comes. Some of us are going to be like, wow, we missed our opportunity. So my feeling is the purpose of teaching as a, in a local pastoral ministry uh, is to get people to live in such a way that they'll be eager and excited at the coming of Christ. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to end the podcast. That was episode 23 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 24, and we talk about superiority of the blood of Christ from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life. 
the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.